Well, good morning. It's good to be here. PJ, is that you? Good to see you, man. Yeah, I'm glad you made it. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Um, I flew in last night from Louis. It, there's about eight different ways you can say it. Uh, Louisville uh, is, is the way that I'll say it. But there's a t-shirt you can get if you ever visit that's got like all eight name ways you can say it just in front across and they spell it like it's like you would pronounce it for that so Louisville Kentucky is where I'm coming from flew in last night and uh, I slept eight hours last night in a hotel so take that jet lag you know (laughs) so I feel good I'm ready to go I'm I'm really excited to be here I don't travel a whole lot Um, and so when I do I specifically come to things where I know I get to specifically address pastors and pastor's wives, church leaders that are here, uh, because that's where, really where my, my heart is and how I feel like I can try to make the biggest impact in the kingdom because if you reach the pastors of the churches, you affect the churches. And so uh, I'm just grateful that I know all of you are very busy. And so I want to honor that this, is, this hopefully will be a fruitful time for us today that you've taken time to, to be here. Let me just mention a little bit about myself so you know where I'm coming from before I get into the things I'm going to talk about. So I, um, I've been in pastoral ministry for about 21 years. I spent the first eight and a half years on staff as an associate pastor at a few different churches. Um, most of them were large churches, very pragmatic, uh, consumeristic. Uh, the word was not preached and... Uh, those are some really difficult situations that I found myself in. And after eight and a half years, I felt the Lord call me to be a senior pastor, to want to preach, want to care for my own flock. And so uh, I basically went to a, a dead, dying Southern Baptist church on the south end of Louisville that nobody wanted to go to. And we went there in 2000, I went there in 2003 with my family. And I kind of knew what I was walking into, but not really. Because the first five years at the church were just brutal. There were three different movements to get me fired in the first five years of the church. And then in year six, the ship just turned and it went a different direction. But that's kind of a whole other story. I may be able to tell a little bit about it later. But I've been there now 14 years, by God's grace. And we've been able to see the church in a very different place. Uh, There were 30 elderly members when I got there 14 years ago. That was all that was left in the church. It was in financial shambles. And there's five still remaining living members from 14 years ago in the church. So the church would have died long ago. And so that's, that's a big piece to my story. And, and because out of that church situation and out of pastoring those, those people, I committed myself to train people for ministry in that context. So I came out of, in those, one of the things about my story in those eight and a half years as an associate is that I tried, I sought every pastor I served with, served with four different senior pastors. Not one of them would mentor me even when I asked them. And so I learned a lot of hard mistakes on my own, eventually got some mentoring outside the church. But when I went to this, this small dying church, I committed myself that if anybody showed up wanting to pursue ministry, I would do all I could to teach them and to mentor them and to train them. And I thought, I'm like 29 years old at the time. Uh, I have no seminary degree and I'm pastoring in Louisville. Like nobody's going to come to my church, you know. And, and I still don't have a seminary degree. And yet God sent people to the church through the years. And so as I'm training these guys, which is simply by just taking them to the hospitals and the funeral homes with me and to the widows' homes, and, and I'm talking them through my sermon prep, through those hard years especially, uh, they started asking me to start writing some of this stuff down for them, which is where the hospital visitation book came out of. And when that came out, we saw there was this gaping hole that Brian talked about, that there's a lot of seminaries training people really well theologically, but they're not training them at all, many places, with how to do practical ministry. And last I checked, the 85-year-old widow who's dying in the hospital doesn't give a rip about your, seminar, your systematic theology class as much as somebody who is going to be there to speak God's truth and to hold their hand and to love them and to help them pursue going into the arms of Jesus as they die. And you guys, all of you who are pastors and church leaders know that's what ministry is about. So practical shepherding came out of that gaping hole that got exposed as I was just in our small church uh, doing that work. And then Southern came to me, Southern Seminary, about three years ago. 
Uh, my story had become pretty well known on campus of what had happened at our church with the turnaround that took place. And they asked me, there was a church revitalization center that they had started and they asked me to run it. And so um, I told them that I wasn't leaving my church. I wasn't giving up anything with practical shepherding and I have no formal theological degrees. You still want to talk to me about this job? And they said yes because they, they said this to me and which let me know that God was at work leading me there. They said, yes, we know we need a practitioner, not a, not a theologian to do church revitalization center at, at seminary and to train students in it. And so I've been doing that for the last three years. Those are the three hats that I wear. And so they all kind of mix together, as you see, you'll see with the books and even the things I'm going to talk about uh, today. And that's the, the experiences I'm coming out of. Before I get into this, um, I want to let you know my family uh, wishes they could be there, but they want to greet you as well, my wife, Kara. And I have four kids. My son, Samuel, is going to be 18 at the end of this month. And he's 6'2". And if you noticed, I'm not. So Samuel's getting big, almost 18. Then I have three daughters. Abby is 16, uh, Isabel is 13, and Claire is 10. And so I have three teenagers and one that wants to be one. And three are girls. You can imagine I kind of have a hormonal hot mess going on in my house right now. But it's all good. Life is messy and that's good. We can embrace that. So that's kind of the context I'm coming from. And, and as Brian and I talked about maybe what would be most helpful to serve you all, this first bit of time I want to address what should be the ministries that we should be focused on. So I don't know about you, but every, on a, almost on a weekly basis, there is someone who comes to me and tells me that they, here's something they think I need to be doing this week. And it's something I don't want to do. It's something I don't think I should do. And yet, for some reason, I feel pulled to do it. And then multiply that, but how many times, right? On a weekly basis, and that's the world we live in as pastors and leaders in the church. And so for several years, I started just scouring the New Testament and trying to see what is it that God really wants me to be doing as a pastor. I know what all these other people are telling me they want me to do, but what should I actually be doing as a pastor? So I started gathering all this information together, thinking through again just practically what are things that need to be done in the church, but how do I know as a pastor what I'm supposed to be doing based on my call and, and what maybe a deacon's supposed to be doing or what this staff person can do for me and delegate in those ways? So what I want to give you is 10 priorities. I narrowed all this down. It sounds narrow, does it? It is. 10 priorities. And I want to just, I'm going to give them to you briefly. We don't have time to go into them in depth, but I want to give them to you. If you have more questions as we go to the Q&A, please Please engage with that as I give these. I want to give like a broad, like 30,000 feet view of this because I want you to see it all together and to realize I'm convinced this is what the Bible tells pastors they are to be doing. And if we are are doing something that doesn't fall into these 10 categories, they probably need to be given to somebody else in your church to be working on and doing. So as I've worked with more and more pastors through the years, that's the question I get all the time is, how am I supposed to spend my time? When I get asked that, I usually tell them, I have 18 things that need to be get, get done today, and about seven are going to get done. How do I figure out what those are? Can anybody else relate to that? Yeah. So we have pressure from others telling us how we should spend our time, and then just eliminate all of them. We have our own just pressure we put on ourselves that we're supposed to be doing because we want to be faithful. We maybe fear what other people think. I mean, there's all this stuff going on in our souls that makes it very muddied and confusing on how do I know what I should be doing today. And it's amazing. I'll sit down, especially with younger pastors who are just getting started, and, and they're just a, they're a mess. Trying to, they're just paralyzed with, what do I do because I'm trying to sort through this and they don't know how. So I assume some of you, if not all of us, are in that category here today. And so I want to give you these 10 priorities, and I want you to see them all together. And before we do that, though, I want want us to look at two passages to kind of act as the umbrella over these 10 priorities. So turn to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. 
I'm going to give you two passages that I'm convinced is the clearest definition that exists in what God says a pastor's work is to be. We're going to start here, 1 Peter 5, and then we're going to move to Hebrews 13 in a minute. And we'll connect the two. 1 Peter chapter 5, first four verses. With first two is the focus, but let's read all four. And remember, not knowing where everybody's coming from, elder and pastor is the same office. Elder and pastor, same thing. Don't get confused by that. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So what is the calling of a pastor in the midst of all the junk we get? Everybody telling us what we're supposed to be doing. What's the call? It's in verse 2. And it's what? Shepherd the flock. That's what God calls us to as as pastors. Shepherd the flock, and this is really important, connected to verse 4, on behalf of the chief shepherd. Do you see that? The call of a pastor is to shepherd the flock as an under-shepherd on behalf of the chief shepherd until the chief shepherd returns. Okay, so hang on to that. Turn to Hebrews 13, 17. 13, 17, just a couple books back. This is a command the writer of Hebrews gives to the Christians he's writing to, and in amazing fashion, in God's inspired word, he gives one of the most tangible definitions of what a pastor is to do here in the midst of that command. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So what do you do if you take Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Peter 5, verses 1-4, through and you combine them? What do you get as the calling of a pastor? It is to shepherd the flock in such a way that we are going to give an account to the chief shepherd for every single soul in our care. Do you see that? Let me repeat that. The call of a pastor is to shepherd the flock in such a way that we care for them on behalf of the chief shepherd and will give an account for every single soul that's entrusted to our care to the chief shepherd. I don't know about you, but when you see it that way, that is, that is a weighty call, is it not? What more noble way to spend our life What more weighty and burdening and yet joyful way for us to spend our life than to shepherd the flock like that. What an honor that is. No wonder it's so hard. So it's this umbrella that I want to look at these ten priorities. And here's why. Why the umbrella to set over it all is important is these ten priorities do not necessarily revolve around increasing in numbers 20% in your attendance. These don't revolve around making sure your financial budget increases 10% this next year. These 10 priorities I'm going to give you revolve around that will stand before the Lord Christ one day and give an account for every soul under our care. Okay? So you following me? That's the ten priorities that I'm going to give you. So let's, let's jump into them. And as we do, by the way, there, I know some of you are pastors. Some aren't. Some of you are church leaders. Some of you may be married to a pastor. I want you to know as I go through these ten priorities, these are all for us, regardless on where we are. Because what I'm about to give you is not only what I think the New Testament says, pastors and the church in general are to be caring for people in the church in this way. But it is one of the, these are some of the most significant ways to minister to people that I think in, in many ways, as you'll see, are lost arts in the church today. 
So if you're just sitting here, you're not even a leader in your church. You're a church member and you, somebody drug you here today. There's actually things in here for you for you to have a very significant, impactful ministry in people's lives in your church. So I hope you see that even as we walk through this. Okay, so ten priorities. Let me give them to you, each of them briefly. I encourage you to write them down and write questions down if you want to um, talk more about them later. Number one, guard the truth. Guard the truth. And with each one of these, I want to just give a, a, just a, a brief evidence biblically of why I think it's there and then maybe a couple of practical helps on how to engage it and then we'll move to the next one guard the truth this is in essence what Paul writes Timothy 2 Timothy 1 14 guard the what the deposit that you are entrusted to and then pass it on to faithful men who can then guard the deposit and we are in that succession line even today as those who are to guard the deposit of the gospel in our churches. And in this generation, and then we're to raise up the next generation to do the same thing. So that has got to be priority number one. Because if we lose the truth, we have nothing, right? So we guard the truth. Let me mention just a couple of practical ways I think we can do that. Number one is, is to declare the gospel to declare the gospel. And I know that sounds really, yeah, uh, that's pretty basic. Hopefully all of us are preaching the gospel. I'm talking about specifically understanding what about the gospel we need to proclaim to guard the truth. That we don't have a that that we have the essentials of it. That we just don't talk about the death of Jesus on the cross, talk about the resurrection. We don't just talk about forgiveness of sins. We talk about this, the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us. I'm in, the, I'm in the middle of preaching through Romans. I just preached to Sunday, Romans 4, 1 through 8. And that's exactly the argument Paul's making. Is that it, it, you're, it's by faith alone that you're not only forgiven, but, but you also have this righteousness that's not of you, that's given to you through, in Christ. And it's by faith alone. So declare the gospel. Be clear about the essentials of the gospel. But as I tell people who are talking about how to share their faith, if you need 15 minutes and an easel and a chart to be able to talk somebody through the gospel, it's probably not simple enough. The question I ask every incoming member in our church is, tell me what the gospel is in 60 seconds or less. And you can find out pretty quick how well they know the gospel. So... That's supposed to be a surprise to the incoming members, but our other members cheat and tell them, and that's not the way it's supposed to go. Declare the gospel. Here's a second. Here's a second thing. Um, defend scripture. And some of you may react and go, "Well, of course we are." But remember, we're talking about guarding the truth. How do we guard the truth? We defend scripture. And I think we have to be careful on how much maybe we give lip service to that, but then our practice doesn't reflect it as, as clearly. So when I say defend Scripture, I mean defend Old and, and New Testament. And one of the things I find really interesting is how much somebody will defend the Old and the New Testament, but preach the New Testament 90% of the time. Preach Old and New Testament. Teach Old and New Testament in your church. That's how we guard all the truth. Here's the last thing I want to mention. Exercising oversight. Do you remember seeing that in 1 Peter chapter 5? Look down if you have it in front of you still. Exercising oversight. One of the ways we exercise oversight is we, we guard the truth in all areas of the church. So pastors can't be involved in every little thing in the church that's not good and that's not healthy. But as we exercise oversight, as Peter commands... Part of that is making sure the truth is foundational in every aspect of our church. And do you realize you guard the truth when you make sure the truth is driving each part of your church? If you haven't learned that lesson, find somebody who had a Sunday school teacher go rogue on them without them knowing for about three months and see what happens. So we guard the truth by exercising oversight over every area in our church, being driven by the truth. Okay, so there's number one. Guard the truth. If we don't have the truth, 
We don't have anything else. We've got to start there. Number two, preach the Word. Preach the Word. It doesn't get any clearer than 2 Timothy 4.2, does it? Paul tells Timothy, preach the Word. In season, out of season. That was the commitment of the apostles. Acts 6, verse 2. They raised up those men to go serve the widows for them to be able to be dedicated to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Preach the Word has to be one of the priorities of our ministry. Here's a couple of practical helps I want to give. I assume I'm preaching to the choir when I say that, but just in case I'm not, I need to say it. Preach the Word. Here's two practical helps. The first one is preach the Word expositionally. I am an advocate of the steady diet of a congregation being preaching through books of the Bible and preach through all the verses as you go through. And as I said, I'm preaching through Romans. Topical sermons are good. Not opposed to that at all. I think it mixes it up in a, in a healthy, good way. What I want to advocate is I think what the steady diet of a congregation to learn their Bibles the best and how we're supposed to understand them is to preach them in such a way that the apostles wrote them in this way for it to be understood. So as I'm preaching through Romans, I'm, I'm growing more and more aware of Paul's writing this because of everything he wrote up to that point. Paul especially is the one that makes this, these brilliant arguments in his letters. So I'm not opposed to topical sermons, but ex- expositional preaching through books of the Bible where your text drives your sermon I think is the best way to have a steady diet for a congregation to learn their Bibles. Here's a second practical thing I want to mention with this. To preach the Word. Preach it faithfully. Here's what I mean by that. There's plenty of young pastors in the room. But this isn't just young pastors that fall into this trap. Preach it faithfully. I don't know where this idea came. Well, I kind of have an idea, but not quite sure. On why this idea that we all have to preach home run sermons every Sunday. What, what is that? What is this pressure that we put on ourselves that we have to produce this and we just get paralyzed with anxiety on Saturday because we don't think we got it? The call is to not preach a home run sermon every week. You wouldn't do that anyways. And burn out in three or four years. Which, by the way, is happening all over the place. Two to three years the average stay of a pastor in a church. Still. What it means to preach the Word faithfully is to do it for 10, 20 years, 30 years. First base, second base, first base, maybe a triple this Sunday. You know? Wherever you've gotten that in your head, which usually comes from the, from the large celebrity pastor culture, actually. I think that's where the pressure comes. Just... Please just disregard all of that in regard to this area. Your your job is in your weakness and wherever you are for that particular Sunday, you bring it and you do all you can and you lay it out there and and Jesus will take whatever broken seeds you sowed and will use in the lives of your people. Why? Because it happens every week, every week, every week for years. So preach the Word, but do so faithfully. 10 out of 10 times, I would rather sit at the feet of a pastor who's pastored a church and preached faithfully for 40 plus years and sit and just talk to him than I would to go hear the most celebrated and popular evangelical conference speaker. And God has allowed me to get to know some of these men. I, there's, a, there's a man, in, in fact, his name's Austin Walker, and he's planted a church in so, just south of London in England uh, he's English, born and raised there. He planted a church there 45 years ago. And he's still there preaching. Actually, he's, he's retiring this year. 45 years. Preaching every week. Every week. 45 years. In this really dark place in south of London. That's the man I want to sit at his feet and learn. So, friends, just remove the pressure. Let go of it. It's not helpful, and it doesn't bring a better sermon, just so you know. Have ambition to preach faithfully over decades, and you've got you to pace yourself to do that.
So preach the Word with all your might, but do it for 30, 40 years. Be one of the... Be one of the um, let's change the statistic. And that's the only way that's going to happen. Number three. Pray for the flock. So guard the truth, preach the Word, pray for the flock. There's place, several places in the New Testament you are going to know. Paul exhorts the church, pray for all the saints, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5. So there's all kinds of commands to pray, and pastors are to be leading the church in that. The apostles were dedicated to prayer, ministry of the Word. It needs to be a priority in our ministry that we are praying for our people. And does that not make sense if the call is to care for souls for Jesus? It's to pray for the flock. So I want to give one practical help that I like to share when it comes to this. Because obviously, there's a lot of things we could talk about. But what I find pastors getting caught up in is they don't, they don't know where to start in praying for people. So then it just feels like this daunting task, and so they, they don't do it very much. I want to urge you to create a systematic way of praying for every member in your church. So let me explain. Uh, if you, so think in your mind for a moment, how many members do you have in your church? So <clears throat> I pastor a church. We have about 75 members in the church now. About 20% of our congregation in the last 12 months got sent out in the ministry, which is wonderful in one way, and it really hurts in the other way. So we're kind of reeling from that. And so we have about 75 members at this point. And so what I did uh, years ago <clears throat> that I still have is I took all 75 of those members, their kids and all, and made a chart that divided up those 75 people in one month's time, 28 days. And so day one, I have three or four families, individuals that I pray for, that are on that, under that day, I pray for them that day. Day two, pray from there and do it 28 days. And in a month's time, you can actually pray for every member by name in your church. And what it became to me, it became a shepherding guide. Because if I'm supposed to give an account for souls, I found myself praying for this person. And then I asked myself, okay, did I see them Sunday? When was the last time I had a conversation with them? What's going on in their life? And what I started doing is contacting them after I would pray for them. Send an email. Send a text. Sometimes I'll call them. If it's a widow I haven't seen in six months, they'll be like, yeah, I need to get over there, actually. And I'll go see her. And what I didn't realize is this became a systematic way so that every soul that is entrusted to my care does not slip through the cracks which happens all the time, even with my best efforts, if I don't have a system to keep up with it. So I want to challenge you. So think of how many members you have. And by the way, it doesn't matter how many members you have. There is a way, depending on how many pastors and elders you have, there is a way to divide this up. In fact, I've, I've been brought into a few mega churches that brought me in. They say, we have 1,100 members and 37 elders. How do we do this? And I've sat down, took a half day, and we made a plan for them to have a personal touch, each member of the church to have a personal touch from an elder every month in some way. It can be done. It just takes a lot of intentional work and effort. And a lot of times it requires a restructuring of the staff to make it happen. But it can be done. If you're sitting here and you have a lot of members... Um, there is a way to approach it. So we can talk about that later if you'd like. But I want to encourage you, not just pray for the flock, have a systematic way to pray for it. It won't feel as daunting. Two, three, four, five people a day, and then you contact them in some way, literally in 30 minutes or less. I can pray for five, six people and shoot a text, an email, or a Facebook message to them every day. And that person gets a personal touch from you as a pastor or a leader. I also want to remind you, it doesn't matter how big the church is, I don't believe when we stand before Christ and we give an account for the souls under our care, that Jesus, it just got too big, is ever going to be an acceptable answer. That's my opinion. Based on what I read in Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 5. So I want to 
urge you to create some kind of systematic way to pray for your flock. That's number three. It's got to be a priority. All right? Number four. I'm going to keep moving. Set an example. If you look back at 1 Peter 5 again, he says, prove to be an example to the flock. We as pastors, as leaders even, are to set an example for our people. It's not going to be a perfect example. Matter of fact, what I have learned as I've embraced my brokenness and messiness of my life more and more, sometimes the example I set for my church is showing how much I don't have it all together. And that actually sets the example. But we are called to set an example. And just for those who are younger, Paul told Timothy, youth is not an excuse. He still says, be an example to those around you. So set an example. A couple practical helps around this. Be a biblical example. Be a biblical one. Here's what I mean by that. One of the worst things we can do is preach one thing from the pulpit publicly and then live totally different from what we preach. And for us to just be really mindful of how easily we can slip in to that. That there's this disconnect in our own, for our own heart and our own life and what we preach. That we become unaware that we preach one thing and then live a totally different way. The other practical thing I'll mention with this is to be a, a humble example. Be a humble example. Be teachable as a pastor to others. One of the ways we set an example is not just to be open, honest, vulnerable about our own struggles to the church, as scary as that is, but to receive care and receive rebuke, receive correction, receive encouragement as a pastor from our church and from our other leaders. I think we get so wrapped up when we hear and we even read in the New Testament, set an example means, oh, i got to do everything right or i got to make it look like I do everything right. That's not what this is talking about just in case some of you feel that burden. The best thing we can do for our churches is let them know we need Jesus just as much as they do. We're just as broken as they are. We fight with our wife and get mad at our kids and and have issues that go on all throughout the day. I get angry when I drive in traffic. That's why I don't live in Los Angeles, I realized today. Be open and honest with your congregation about your struggles. You might be surprised on how much we're worried that what they might think. Well, they may actually think they can come and talk to you about something they haven't talked to you about. Number five, I'm going to keep moving. Visit the sick. For the record, it is a priority in a pastor's ministry. I don't care what your role is to be visiting the sick to go to the hospitals and care for people who are dying. It's in the New Testament. Matt, and Jesus talked about it in Matthew. And when he said when he was talking about a, a parable, when they asked, how do, we, you know, how do we love you in these ways? And Jesus said, when you do this to your brother, you love me. And he says, when you, when you visited me when I was sick. So Jesus connected with that. But the clearest thing to look at is in James chapter 5. It specifically says, the Apostle James says for the elders to go and pray for the sick. It doesn't get any clearer than that. And I want to challenge each of you who are pastors, elders, if you don't do that, what makes you the exception that James talks about? Maybe there's something God wants to do in you in visiting sick people. Not just that this is something a deacon can do or one of your associates can do. Charles Spurgeon, just one of my favorite quotes of Spurgeon. He's got some great ones, doesn't he? He says, one of the greatest gifts God gives to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. God does something to us when we're sick and we go care for sick people. And those who have engaged in that, you know what I'm talking about. In the hostility I dealt with in the early years of my church, one of the places I started winning some of these folks who were so after me is they went to the hospital, they almost died, and I showed up. 
And my relationship was different with him ever since then. So don't underestimate that God wants to do something with you and your relationship with that person just as much as that a sick person gets cared for. And I think that's why it's here. And it needs to be a priority in your ministry to some degree. Um, let me give you three practical helps around this. And the reason I, give, I want to give these three, there's tons that we talk about. This is an area that, you know, what I find a lot of pastors don't go is because they're afraid. They, they don't know what to say or do. So there's a lot of practical helps around what you can do. Before I give these, I want to remind you of this. There are two places that I think the most significant ministry in our ministries is done, and it's the two places that many pastors are actually running from. It's the hospital and it's the funeral home. The hospital and the funeral home, I would argue, are two of the most significant places ministry is actually done in our, in our lives. And sadly, it's the two places a lot of pastors are running from. Which baffles me. Other than the fact that they don't realize that that's what they're running from. But a lot of times it's out of fear. I'm, my dad was a, a, a doc, so I kind of grew up in the hospital. And was comfortable around it. But there's a lot of people who get squeamish in hospitals and don't like it. And um, just because you get hired as a pastor and get that title doesn't mean all that fear goes away. Doesn't mean all of a sudden you don't get squeamish at the sight of needles and blood. So I want to be sensitive to that. So here's three things. Number one, when you go to the hospital, read Scripture. Read Scripture. If you don't know what to say, that's okay. There's not a lot to say a lot of times. Then let God speak. Just take your Bible and go read Scripture to them. The worst thing you can do is go and think you have some clever thing you can say that's going to make everything okay. Go in and acknowledge, well, I don't, I don't know what to say, but you know what? I, can, I read, can I read a passage to you? Read Scripture. Um, number two. Way to just practical help with this. Pray the gospel. Pray the gospel. It doesn't matter how much they've heard it. When someone's in a hospital, it means they're either really sick or they're about to die. And there are no sweeter words than remind somebody of what our hope really is in Christ. One of the reasons I love doing funerals, I actually love doing funerals, for a, for a lot of reasons, but personally, it confronts me with the reality of death and why Christ is so precious to us in that moment. And I forget that. And that's why I want to go back to funerals and be reminded of it. And you get to preach it. So pray the gospel. Here's another reason to pray the gospel. When the gospel's prayed, it's heard. So I, I had a church member ask me to go visit her, her daughter in the hospital who was dying of cancer. This, girl, this lady grew up in the church. Uh, she was in her 50s, I think. And so everybody just said, will you go visit her just as a kind gesture? And I did. And I was talking to her, and, and I happened to just ask a question right before I left, you know, that I'll ask often. I say, so are you ready to stand before Jesus and meet him? And she said, yes, I am. And I asked a follow-up question that I'm really glad I did, and I've always done since with people I don't know. Because everybody assumed, because she grew up in the church, she knew the gospel. And I said, why are you ready to stand before Jesus and she said, because I have been a good person. So what do you do at that point? Do you have a theological argument with somebody as they're laying there dying of cancer? Um, it's a hard call to make. But I started to just try to talk to her about it a little bit, and she grew hostile to me pretty quick. And so there's that dilemma. I don't want to, I don't want to attack this woman in an argument. At the same time, she's dying of cancer, and I don't want to just walk away. And then I realized I have yet to ever be turned down for prayer by the most hostile person. So I said, can I pray for you then before I go? She said, yes. And I prayed the gospel. So when you pray the gospel, the gospel is heard by whoever is there. And so if you're talking to somebody who is hostile towards you and trying to talk about it in a situation where they may die, that is a wonderful way. If we believe when the gospel is prayed, it's heard and faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of christ that's our job to do that so pray the gospel last practical help with this one this is profound you ready make sure you're taking notes here we go 
leave a note. It's profound, huh? So I went to hospitals and would go visit somebody, and they would be in with the doctor, and I couldn't see it, so I left. And two hours later, I came back to the hospital, and they were downstairs running tests, and I didn't get to see this person, and then I left. And then I came back again, and I had this epiphany from the Lord at that moment. I should write a note (laughs) instead of burn five hours like I just did, going back and forth in the hospital. And I wrote a note and just said, hey, I'm, you know, I was here, but you were, you were in, in with the doctor. We're praying for you. Let us know if there's anything you can do. Write a note. Leave it with the nurse. And I left. It, do not underestimate the power of leaving a note like that if you can't see somebody when you go visit them. So there's this elderly widow, sweet, amazing woman, went to be with the Lord about six years ago. And last year of her life, she was in on the hospital a lot. And I missed her quite a bit through the years. And when I go to the hospital to see her, six months before she died, they moved her to an assisted living. And I went to see her after she had gotten settled in her room. And I walk in, and on the wall, there's this bulletin board with pinned up every note I ever wrote to her and left her in the hospital, pinned up on the wall. And people from church who had written notes to her. She had this giant pinned up wall of notes. Do not underestimate the power behind just leaving a note. As a lot of times it can have as big an impact as you even getting to talk to the person. So you can do this. This is incredibly impactful ministry to do when you visit the sick. Number six, comfort the grieving. As I said, the two places run from is the hospital and the funeral home. But those are where the most significant ministry is done. So comfort the grieving. Jesus, John 11, before he even raises Lazarus from the dead, he, he comforts Mary and Martha. He weeps himself. First Thessalonians 4, Paul's writing to address the Thessalonians. You're like, what happens, to our, what happens to us? What happens to our bodies when, they, when we die? And, and, and he talks about that, the return of Christ and how he's going to call us up with him. And at the very end of him talking about when Jesus is going to return for us and what's going to happen and what a glorious day that is, he says at the end, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. So there is this call for us to comfort those, especially those who are grieving. And I think I'm pointing specifically into, in a funeral context. So I've probably done 150 funerals. Um, 100 of those are people that I did funerals for that I had never met. So, quick tip for you. If, uh, find the closest funeral home to your church, if you haven't done this. Go introduce yourself. You probably know them already. Go in and talk to them and say, hey, if you ever have a family that comes in that does not have a pastor to do this funeral, call me. I would love to help. And I'll come do the funeral. And I, I did this shortly after there's a funeral home a block from our church. And I've done probably over 100 funerals there just for people that didn't have a pastor and they called me and asked me to come. A captive group of unbelievers more than likely to get to preach the gospel to every single funeral. So, I would encourage you to look into being able to do that. And as far as for a funeral, let me give, there's three practical helps I want to give. There's three things that should be in every funeral if you're doing, regardless on if it's a faithful Christian who everybody knows walked with the Lord, or if it's the biggest pagan you've ever buried. There's three things that need to be in every funeral because the funeral is for the people who are there. Ultimately, not for the one who's gone. So three things. Number one, celebrate the deceased. We got all three of you, three of them to you, and then I'll explain. Declare the gospel and exhort people to respond to the gospel. So celebrate the deceased, number one. Declare the gospel. Number three, exhort people to respond. One of the reasons Phil Newton and I wrote a book on funerals back there is because he had, he had been a pastor for, he's been a pastor for over 30 years, and we were talking, and we were reminiscing about how many awful funerals we've been to. And we realized what happens either a lot of times, Jesus isn't even mentioned. 
but somebody will either swing one side or the other. They'll, they'll spend the whole time as a memorial like celebrating the deceased in their life, which is good to do, but then they'll say anything about Jesus. And then you swing to the other side, and like the, the newest seminary graduate gets to do his first funeral. He's like, boy, I'm going to hammer them with the gospel, let me tell you. And do nothing to help people grieve over this loss, which is what you do when you publicly celebrate who just died. So those two things have to be balanced in every funeral. And then exhort people to respond to the gospel. There is a tasteful way to preach Christ and the hope of Christ in a time of death that is not rude and overbearing and even be able to call people to respond to it. And that can be something we can flesh out later in the Q&A if you want. But celebrate the deceased, declare the gospel, exhort people to respond. It doesn't matter who you're doing the funeral for. All three of those things need to be in every funeral to truly comfort the grieving. Visiting the sick, comforting the grieving needs to be a priority in your ministry. Number seven, care for widows. Care for widows. Is that not what was going on in Acts 6? The apostles called those seven godly men to come and care for the widows who were not being cared for equally. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and has a whole section where he talks about widows. He talks about who they are and how you're supposed to care for them. So it boggles my mind on why widow care has almost been forgotten in local churches. We are so busy with so many other things that are flashy and fun and show a lot of public fruit that the ministry to widows is is almost forgotten. And man, it is a precious ministry to do. And I've had some amazing widows in my church. So we've got to care for widows. I, I love the recovery of one, orphan care through adoption, and two, the care for the poor in mercy ministries all across churches. I love it. Where is the third one that's the triad in all throughout Scripture of widow? It's widow, orphan, and the poor. So I want to challenge each of you, where is, where is widow care in your church? And don't just think elderly woman. You know, some of you, I'm sure you know, know if you do, have younger widows. We, I have a woman whose husband abandoned the faith and abandoned her and her daughter. We care for her like a widow. Even though her husband technically didn't, hasn't died. Care for widows. So a couple practical helps with this. Three things I want to give you and then I'll explain them together. Visit, include, and honor. Visit, include, and honor. Widow care is actually a lot simpler than you think. And the number one thing you want to try to address is their rampant loneliness they feel. So visit, include, and honor. Visit them. Go to where they live and sit with them in their home. Go on their turf. Let them show you their life and their home and talk you through the things that they've experienced. That's some of my favorite things I've ever done in ministry is to sit with my widows in their home and learn from them. So visit, include. Take a widow and include them in your family during the holidays. So... Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthday parties. We even, I've, I've watched a pastor, a friend of mine, who has taken widows on vacation with he and his family before. Include them as part of your family. My father told you, was a, I grew up a, a doctor's kid, and um, he was a general practice doc, delivered over like 2,000 babies in his practice. And it never failed. Every Thanksgiving, he'd be off doing rounds, and we'd see him, he'd be coming home late, so we'd have a later lunch. And he'd, be, he'd have some elderly woman walking with him back to the house uh, that, that he had brought from the hospital because he's doing rounds. He's the last one there and found some elderly woman there who didn't have anybody, probably one of his patients, and he brought her home. And she came and had Thanksgiving with us, and that's what I grew up in. I was very thankful for that example. Include them in your family. Here's the third. Honor them. Honor widows and try to honor them in a way that I found that's most meaningful in the way 
that their husbands or widower, their wife, honored them. So there's, for there's a woman married 65 years in our church. Her husband died. And everybody, everybody you know, knew this lady and loved her. And he died, and then the very next year when her anniversary was coming around, let me first say this, for 65 years until her husband died, every single year on their anniversary, without exception, he came home from work on their anniversary and had a gift for her and it brought a yellow rose. 65 years. Something significant about the yellow rose. He died the next anniversary. A young single guy heard that story and remembered it. And the day of her anniversary, he figured out when that day was and he went and got a gift and a yellow rose and he showed up at her doorstep. You can imagine the impact that had on that woman and how loved she felt and known she felt of all things some young single guy so visit include and honor widows and it is such a meaningful ministry but it is not flashy it's one of those many things we get to do as pastors that you and that widow and god gets to know about and that's good for us to do okay last three I'm going to lump together in a way because I put these last three together and last because most of us try to avoid these three. So you ready? Because these are really hard to do. Number eight is confront sin. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to confront sin. It better be if you enjoy confronting sin, you have issues and we need to talk. But New Testament's clear. This has got to be a priority for us. If we're caring for people's souls, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 3. All clear texts talking about that we are not to ignore unrepentant sin in our midst in the, in the church. And that they're to be lovingly approached and confronted. So the three practical helps I'm going to give you on this, I would call motivators to do it. Because I don't know about you, every time I've had to do this, and we've had to walk through church discipline in our church, it is excruciatingly painful. So these are three motivators to do, to do this, even though it's hard. One is obey Scripture. You're obeying Scripture when you confront sin. God told me I'm supposed to do this, even though I might not like it. And there's something about knowing I'm obeying God when I'm doing what He's asked me to do. Second is we're defending the Gospel. Someone who's in a gross, scandalous public sin, like Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 5, when we confront sin, we are defending Christ's name to the world, not just those in the church. The other thing we're doing is we're caring for their souls. To leave someone in open, rampant, unrepentant, destructive sin and we say nothing is like leaving somebody in a burning house saying they'll be okay. We confront sin because we want to care for their souls. And that's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 5. If you remember, look back on that passage. He says, do this so that their souls might be saved on the last day. The confrontation is what God may indeed use to bring them back to Him. So that's confront sin, number eight. Number nine, encourage the weaker brother and sister we got to be careful with this because we're all weak and broken. We don't want to say that some are weak and some aren't. That's not what we want to do with this. But what we can ignore as I, as I look through the New Testament, there is clearly a category called the weaker brother and sister in the, in the New Testament. Those who have been pastors long enough know who they are in your church, by the way. You already know who it is. I know who it is in mine. It's those who take a lot of our time, need a lot of care, and we don't see a whole lot of fruit come out of it. But it needs to be a priority that we still care for the weaker brothers and sisters in our church. But let me give you a couple of ways I think we do it. We make it still a priority, but it doesn't consume us. We've got to do it patiently because it takes time. And again, there's not a lot of immediate fast fruit to come from it. It's very much a two steps forward, one step back walk with somebody. Do it patiently. Do it hopefully. 
Do not despair if you're dealing with one of God's sheep who may be constantly depressed, discouraged, just can't get over and cannot emerge from the darkness that they live in. Keep walking with them. We've got to do it hopefully, knowing that God can act in any time He wants. And it's up to God. It's not up to your skill to pull them out of it. You need to just walk with them and love them. Which leads to the third one. That's we care for the weaker brothers and sisters corporately. The worst thing you can say, so hear me, because if you say this, you need to be aware of it and fix it. If you ever say to somebody, well, I've got to go because I'm the only one they'll talk to. I'm the only one that can really care for them like this. Got kind of quiet in here, actually. If you say that to yourself, that needs to be a massive flag for you. Bring others along with you to help. And we have, we have uh, even a rotation with a certain lady who we care for in the church who's needed a lot of care through the years. And God has, has worked miraculously in a lot of ways, but it's been a slow work. And we set up a rotation. Literally, I'll go to a, a, a female leader in our church and I'll say, hey, will you meet with this lady for six months? And if you will dedicate yourself to this woman for six months, in six months I will relieve you and give somebody else to her. And we spent years rotating some of our ladies. Because when you give somebody that task indefinitely, well, if you're wore out, what do you think is going to happen to that lady? So we've got to bring others in to care for each other. All right, number 10, last one. Identify and train leaders. That has to be a priority in your ministry to identify and train and affirm leaders. It is not the seminary's responsibility or Bible colleges or mission organizations or wherever to train and raise up pastors and missionaries. It's not their job. They help. But from the New Testament standpoint, it is the local church's responsibility. And the local church will answer to God on that responsibility. So it's our responsibility to raise up and train leaders. Great. Send them to seminary, great. But raise them up and train them. So as I'm working at Southern Seminary now, it's really interesting how, how my, what my role is vamping into because guys are doing, finishing a 96-hour MDiv and they show up in my office like a semester before they graduate with, with big eyes and they say, I don't know how to pastor. And they came with this understanding seminary was going to do that. Some of you maybe experienced that. We as the church and pastors are to train other pastors. And you know what? One of the most glorious, joyful things I do and one of the hardest things I do is the same thing. And that's to pour into leaders. Both men and women. Pour into them for years. Build a relationship to where you have no choice but to just love them a lot. And then you send out your best. That's really hard to do. Like I just told you, I mean, we're... Our church is fine, but we're, we're kind of reeling financially as we're doing our budget for this next year because we just lost 20% of our congregation we just sent out in the ministry. And the church is growing and being replaced as God has always done, but they're, like, they're, they're growing with poor community folks and international refugees, which I love. But to get real practical, they don't give a lot of money because they can't. And here we are scrambling to try to figure out what to do with our budget. It's hard to do that work. But it is worth it. And God always replaces those if you're faithful to send them out. So there's four things, just four steps. I'll just give you the words. They'll speak for themselves. Test, train, affirm, and send. Test, train, affirm, send. That's the process that we do in our church still. And in 14 years, we have never spent one dime in the budget on training men for, ministry, for pastoral ministry and men and women for missionary work. Not one dime in the budget. So don't let money be an excuse that you don't do this. we got to test people. We, we train them. 
by putting them in real ministry situations. So I don't just visit widows. I take people with me. And then I send them to go to the widows after we've gone. Because, and I send them to the hospital. And I send them to the funeral home. We have to identify and train leaders and raise them up. It's our responsibility as a local church. So there's the 10. Step back for a minute. Take a breath. Look at your notes. And see all 10 of these together for a moment with me. This is, I'm convinced, how God, through His Word, has instructed us as pastors to spend our time. If the banner that we work under is to shepherd the flock for the chief shepherd in a way that will give an account for souls, not numbers, not flashy programs, we give an account for souls. We have to function in our ministries realizing how God evaluates our ministries, not how everybody else around us does. And that's the only way to relieve the pressure that so many of you probably feel of this church is growing faster than mine, this church has more money than we do, These people, this church has a better music team than we do. It's about caring for souls. And I want to urge you to see in the midst of everybody trying to pull on your time that if, if your time is not spent in these ten areas, if there's something else you do, it needs to be delegated to another leader, to a deacon, to a staff person, whoever it is. This is the work a pastor is called to. So, let's take a moment. I just, if you all would just uh, close your eyes, let's reflect on this a moment before I close this in prayer and we'll take a break. I want to ask a couple of reflective questions for you to just think on. And then I'll pray. As you process these ten things, how is your time spent in a given week? Does it revolve around these things? Are you driven by the the call, the divine call to care for souls on behalf of the chief shepherd? Or is your time spent running things? Is your time spent dealing with buildings and logistics and unnecessary admin work that somebody else can do? Just you, between you and God, evaluate your ministry on a weekly basis with this. For those who aren't pastors here, as we go through these ten things, did God move in any way in your heart? for you to realize maybe a significant ministry He's calling you to that you had no idea that you could do. One that would impact people significantly. Something that you know you have the gifts to do. But maybe no one's approached you to say you should do this. I want to challenge you to take a risk maybe step out into one of those ministries. Lord, by Your Spirit, would You move in our midst. Speak to us. Move in our hearts to help us to be faithful shepherds of Your people. Lord, for those who are here who are feeling the weight of maybe neglecting some of these areas, Lord, would You give them grace? Remind them of Your love and Your forgiveness. That we're all broken and we're a work in progress and we're all learning how to do this better. Lord, renew in each of us a desire to care for our own soul 
and thus to care for the souls of others as the greatest motivation in what we do. Then in the midst of the difficulties of ministry, the thanklessness that exists in many places, that you are pleased by our work that often you only see. Lord, you encourage these men and these women who are here today in whatever that ministry is for them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.